This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by God Speaks, a participatory theology of biblical inspiration. I'm its author, Gabriel Gordon. I've written this book to look at biblical inspiration differently than many of us do, one which looks through the lens of the Jewish and Christian traditions to explore how a God who is uncontrolling love affects how we see what biblical inspiration is and what it is not. This is the first book of its kind, which explores the uncontrolling love of God theology of philosopher and theologian Thomas J. Ord and its implications for the nature of scripture. If that sounds like a book you'd like to read, go order a copy at your local bookstore or anywhere you buy your books. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. John just said, I can do whatever I want. You can. Whatever I want. So I'm out of here. I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm leaving and I'm going to do whatever I want. Hey, by the way, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. We are, uh, we're glad you're here. My name is Nat. Um, that's N-A-T. Not, don't, don't put the G in front like John used to do the whole time we were growing up and then compare me to that little pest that flies around. No, no, no. I'm not a gonad. The name is Nat. But you are a gonad. Well, that is different. And that goes back to other stories that we'll tell at some other point. But um, I'm Nat. Uh, up in the upper left-hand corner of the Hollywood Squares is John. Um, this would be a good time to have video for people who yeah. don't know what the hell I'm talking <laughs> If you've been on a Zoom call, you know John's in the uh, most irrelevant square of the uh, of the Hollywood Squares. But uh, say hi, John. Hi, John. I'm, I, it's been a long day, and I've been drinking, so <laughs> the creativity is not not great. But this is the uh, this is the podcast, man. We uh, we call it "This Is Not Church" because um, if it was church, you'd have left by now. And again, as we keep saying, we'd be right there with you. We'd be leaving too. But uh, don't go until we've had a chance to pass the, the offering plate. Yeah, and giving yeah. you and have given you an opportunity to sow into our ministry because I think that's important. I would not want to rob you of a blessing, John. Well, and if you do it faithfully and from the heart, and substantially and substantially, right. God will reward you sevenfold. Tenfold. Let's go tenfold. tenfold. I've been in churches where they made a money back guarantee on your tithe. I mean, that's impressive. Now, I do remember going to a church one time, John. I think I remember this. Maybe it's just something I invented, but I do remember saying, I remember seeing a, a preacher say something about we like we like money that jingles, but we we prefer the kind that folds before he passed the plate. And I was like, wow, that's pretty ostentatious. But and then that became a song. Did it? I have no idea. I think I just invented that whole story. But hey, we have a cool guest with us tonight, and uh, let me get let me get let, let me get around to it. So we just stop listening to me blather about nothing. Uh, we have Matt Kenzera with us tonight. Uh, let me read you a little bit about him, and then we're going to jump into a conversation with him. And says uh, says after dedicating his life to ministry for eighteen years as a pastor, a prison chaplain, and worship leader, Matt Kenzera found himself looking for work on Indeed.com. Hey, John. This is a good time to talk about one of our sponsors, Indeed.com. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in the market for a job. Don't look around with monster.com. <laughs> Fuck those guys. You're going to want to go to indeed.com. They're the shit. That's actually a new tagline. I just wrote it for him. If anyway. we only got paid for that, that would be <laughs> awesome. You might. Maybe somebody at indeed.com will hear that and be like, yes. <laughs> what we need is some obscure podcaster going, indeed.com. They're the shit. And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, that's a great tagline. But anyway, he's at a local coffee shop. By the way, I own a coffee shop. So that's pretty amazing that you were in a local coffee shop. Uh, after you got kicked out of the faith community, he started to serve the poor and homeless in his community by the leadership team he developed. Isn't that a kick in the arse? And we used to talk about that. Uh, since that time, he has spent his time uh, de- uh, exploring what a meaningful life of faith can look like apart from the organized church. Matt's first book, Bring It Home, The Adventure of Finding Yourself After Being Lost in Religion, was released in November of 2022 with Lake Drive Book and encourages the reader to find God in the right 
right in the center of our story. Matt is a full-time speaker, author, and the host of the Chasing Goodness podcast. He partners with incredible organizations such as Rachel's Challenge, Celtic Way, Solarize, and Ashoka, among others. Uh, all of this brought to you again by Indeed.com. Go ahead, man. Welcome to the podcast. We're glad you're here. Th- thanks. I, I, I just first want to commend your ability to read that bio that I wrote earlier today. That was so well read. So well read. <laughs> was, I ain't gonna lie. It was a challenge. Yeah, you, you're amazing. That was. I might hire you for some future work. Hey, if you need voiceover stuff, man, I can definitely lower the voice and like indie.com. Yeah, you've dun, got dun, a good dun, voice. I can write a jingle too. Indie.com, yeah. they're the shit. Dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. We'll try to fund everything we all of us do from Indeed. Amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. Hey, um, very cool. Uh, you and I sound, sounds like on some levels we have a, we have a pretty similar, <laughs> similar story. Oh, good. Uh, I spent a lot of time in ministry. I was never officially kicked out. Okay. But I was made to not feel very welcome. I could say that. And so, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's very more passive aggressive than, you know, I actually would have, I would have probably res- respected some of those folks more if they just said, you know, we get the hell out. Because like, that probably was their intention. Yeah, at least they'd be honest about it. Yeah. But there yeah. was a lot of, there was a lot of other stuff, you know what I mean? A lot of subtext I had to go, you know what? I just don't feel comfortable. But, but yeah, walk us through that story if you don't mind. If it's a, obviously it's part of your, part of your journey, right? It is. It's a big part of my journey. So my, my wife and I have been in ministry pretty much our whole lives. And it started through music ministry, you know, worship ministry, things like that. And then we had this desire to start a, a very missional, community where we focused on our own community and, and starting something for the poor and homeless in our own space and uh, and worked really hard for eight years to do that and and gathered a lot of people with this, what, what felt like similar hearts. And then I'll never forget. It, I mean, it's worse than even it sounds because the people that were really against me, because at the, at the heart of it, my goal was to just love people. So I wanted everybody in there, no matter how they smelled, how much what they looked like, no matter what. I wanted everybody to walk in that door and feel like they were cared for and feel like they were a part of a, a community that mattered. And there was a group of people that initially that I, I you know, invited into the, the organization. It's called B-Side, B-Side Community. And um, you know that group of people was much more interested in things like discipleship or sharing the gospel message or whatever. And so not only did they, you know, and this was a long time coming, it was years and years, you know, it's probably a couple of years of just kind of fighting against this group of people. And not only did they want me out, but what they did at the end, which was kind of the the part that I really had to work through, is they didn't actually, they weren't the one, the people that were I was most against or the people that I struggled with the most weren't the ones who asked me to leave. They actually asked the people who were still my friends to ask me to leave. And so it was two people that were really good friends. One who's still my one of my best friends to this day. And they asked them to get in a room with me as another local pastor to just ask me to step down from this thing that I started. And it was like, what I tell everybody, it was, it was, it was the most horrible and beautiful experience of my life. Because I, I mean, I wanted to punch something. And I'm a pretty, I'm a pacifist for the most part. And never in my life have I wanted to to hit some hit a wall, hit a person, hit whatever as much as I did in that moment. But at the same time, it was the first time in 18 years that I felt like I could explore spirituality for myself without my paycheck depending on it. And so it was 
equal parts the worst and best moment of my life all within the same day. And that's, I mean, that's actually a true story because I went to local coffee shop and hopped on Indeed. And I was like, I got to somehow provide for my family. And for three years, I was a, uh, what are they, like a, uh, you know, I just, I, I worked with elderly people and brought joy and, and laughter to them. So I was a, you know, uh, like an activities director at an elderly home for three years. That's what I found on Indeed, and I actually got the gig. But you know, if that's so, I'm thankful that you know somehow I was able to provide for my family. But at the same time, like this thing that I worked for for so long, just you know, was in some ways taken away from me. But it didn't. It didn't make me want to give up on God. And some levels, it made me want to give up on people. I definitely let that deconstruction go as far down as it could. But at the end of the day, I, the thing that I was never willing to give up on was faith, and so that's kind of been my my goal the last you know six seven years is to try to figure out how do we do faith without this thing that I was so comfortable for so many years. Yeah, that's a. I mean, my experience is, is similar, and it's different, obviously, but it's similar. Um, I grew up in ministry, music mostly, without going into too much detail. The stories were still. I mean, that was hurtful, but I had that same. I had that same epiphany. I think. Of like this is simultaneously the worst thing that's ever happened to me, and the most liberating thing that's ever happened to me. And what I found is, and I think I'm with you again. I don't. I, I never once went, "Oh, God's not real." I never once went, "Oh, Jesus is not." Re-. I went, "Maybe religion sucks. Maybe church is irredeemable." And I'm actually in a place right now where I'm not sure that institutional church is redeemable. Community, I believe in fully. And I'll buy off on, I think, the fact that we're, we're, I think we're designed and made to be, you know, in community with people and relationship with people. I just don't think it has to exist inside of a structure. And, but for the first time I was like, you know, like my, my paycheck no longer depends on this. So therefore I can kind of say what I want, explore what I want, go places that I had been nervous to go before because I don't want to get fired, you know? And, uh, man, that is liberating, but I also, I, I can definitely, I mean, I, I would imagine it's painful as hell too, right? Yeah, because I mean, those were people that... So before this happened, I would say like a year before this happened, these were the people I would call my family because my family doesn't live in the city that I live. And so these people re- literally played the... Like we had Christmas Eves together. We had we were raising our kids together. So the fact that it got to the point where it got to was really... Um, you know, it was it was... It's still, even when I think about it now, it's still hard to think about the fact that because of our differences in beliefs on theology or religion or whatever, that that caused us not to be family, friends, or whatever you want to call it anymore. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it still sucks. Well, that's weird because that's, that's another connection that I didn't make until just now because I don't know if I've ever thought about it in those terms, but I'm, it was exactly the same for me. I'm not from Texas. All my family's in California. These people were my, these were my family. This was my surrogate family. You know, uh, the older people that were in my, that were surrogate parents in a lot of ways, you know, they were people standing in, oh man, okay, I'm having like this another, I hadn't thought about it. That's, it, it, it does explain some of the deeper wounds. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, well, and for me, like the, the deepest wounds on it, like, I don't know, like as a, for me, the mentality that I have is like, I'm willing to, I'm willing to come to peace with that. But at the same time, this also affected my entire family. So I've got two, you know, right now I've got a 17-year-old and a 19-year-old and and my wife as well. Out of the four of us, I'm the least relational. And so I can kind of 
you know, from a standpoint of relationships, like I'll get over it probably faster than anybody else. But then to see the the chal- the the hardships that my kids have had to go through, the hardships that my wife has had to go through, because we all lost them. You know, it wasn't just me losing them; we all lost them, and it's not because we wanted to. We tried really hard not to, but just for the sake of the way that we believe, for us to lose humans in our life, it just it just seems still to this day it seems ins- it kind of insane. You know, if you don't if you don't mind my asking, what was what was some of the major bones of contention? I mean, what was it that got you sideways with those folks? <laughs> well, early on in my even so I grew up Catholic, so early on in my evangelical journey, I started asking questions that nobody wanted to have conversations about, whether that was about the LGBTQA plus community or whether that was about heaven and hell, there was things that didn't make sense to me. And nobody within that context wanted to have those conversations. Um, and so then we start this little missional community. I'm assuming maybe there will be more space for that. And then really what it came down to is, my, you know, when you meet, when you spend a lot of time, and I was a prison chaplain for seven years, and then we worked in this community where most of the people that would come to our, our faith community on a Sunday the vast majority of them were living on the streets or living in really, really hard situations. And so the idea of having some sort of, you know, three-step model to perfect Christianity was so far removed from that because number one, we're dealing with a lot of mental health issues. Number two, this is a group of people who's been really, really, you know, uh, done over by the church in general already. And so my heart, again, so I got my leadership team together and I said, hey, everything we're doing isn't working because nobody's getting any better. So I said, how about this? How about number one, they show up and we just love them. How about number two, we invite them into this community no matter what. And how about number three, we just tell them the truth about, not necessarily about Jesus, but what we see in their lives. And so if we see you inviting men into your house in order to feel like you're valued and you're, you know, you're giving of yourself in a way that doesn't seem helpful, like we're going to actually say that we don't think that's smart. And so kind of this circle of say, hey, you're loved, you're invited into this community no matter what, and we're going to be honest with you. Now, the the rest of the, the, and I won't say the rest of them, but the group of people that was against me really had this belief that, hey, if we don't try to get them across the line of salvation, if we don't try to get them in a, a real model of discipleship, then we're failing. And so really the the difference between my idea and their idea was not, you know, anything other than that, that I just thought that, hey, love is enough. Their mindset was that, hey, we need a real specific model of discipleship and model of salvation, which I wasn't bought into, which... And I I told them at some point, I was like, I'm not walking away. Like, you're going to have to ask me to leave. And if you ask me to leave, I'll leave. But I'm not going to go without like fighting for this people that I started this for. It always seemed to me a little bit. We were we were talking with another guy a little while ago about, but just this whole idea of 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 evangelism in a you know in a sense was was always always seemed to me like a lot of bait and switch type stuff. Like I want you to go out into the world and I want you to befriend these people, but there's always an ulterior motive, right? We want to be friends so that we can, you know, rather than just befriend and love and invite for the sake of being human beings. There was always. And I think people can, I don't, I don't think, I know people can sense that, that disingenuousness, you know, that people's bullshit meters are pretty, pretty tuned in, especially people who live on the streets and who, you know what I mean? Who, who, who have had to, by virtue of their, of their reality, have had to be able to sniff that stuff out. Man, they, they see right through that stuff so fast. 
if you really want to reach those folks, you've got to be the most honest people I think you can be. For us, and I think John, John and I both um, got sideways with our particular parent churches when we started really kind of being more open about being affirming and accepting of the LGBTQIA plus community. And, and that became problematic for us. I know, I know it became problematic for John. Was that instrumental for you as well? That seeing that community mistreated or? Oh, you, yeah. Like you have no idea Nat. So, so my daughter, when she was, so she came out to us, my, my oldest daughter came out to us when she was in fifth grade. She came out to the world when she was a freshman in high school. That's right. And what I, yeah, it really was. She's an incredible human being. But what I described that moment to feel like to, to a lot of people who've never been there is that I felt like, you know, I described my church family as my actual family because that's what they felt like. And I, and in one moment, I felt like I went from a person, how do I say it? I, I just felt like suddenly I had to protect my daughter from my family. And that was a that was that was a hard process and a long process, and um, and that was maybe the moment when I realized, hey, maybe we should stop playing this game, and maybe we should just be honest and real about this. But the the hard part is like nobody has that conversation. I was I was talking to our our our, our corporate friend Keith Keith Miles, and we we're talking about like Jesus Revolution that came out. How about about how that movie? You know, as much as it can be inspiring, like they, they, well, they just whitewashed. Yeah, they strategically take out the part about, you know, about people in the movie, specifically, you know, one gentleman and specific that was gay. And they just, they kind of gloss over that. So it feels a little better. But at the end of the day, like life doesn't always feel good. Sometimes life is hard. And even in that, Jesus and even in that spirituality and even in that faith. And so I think the hard part for me with my daughter coming out was simply like, you know, I know how much I love this kid. I know how much this kid matters to the world. And just because suddenly they are different sexually, then all of a sudden they're they're disqualified. And to watch how their youth group and their youth leaders treated them, it was uh, it was shocking. It was shock like you hear it, but then when you see it. And then it's your kid. It changes everything. Well, that for me, I mean, it's funny that you bring up the movie because for me, uh, and I'm not going to go into the whole story of me leaving the church, coming back to the church because all of our podcast listeners have heard that and are probably like, yeah, 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 whatever. They're sending me chats right now. Like, like, don't let them do that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> for for a moment in time, the, the church that I re-entered was a Calvary Chapel church. So I, I re-entered thinking that this was a little bit more, I don't even know how to describe it because I did, you know, I'd been away from the church for almost 30 years when I decided to re-enter a church. And it seemed somewhat open in the beginning, right? Because I think every church, and I, and I do mean every church, and if you don't like me making that blanket statement, you can, you can fight me. But, uh, they all have, they all have a, this idea or this statement that they put out that everybody is loved. Now, some actually follow through. That's the part that's different, but very few do. So everyone's welcome. Everybody's loved until you tell them that you're a member of the LGBTQIA plus community or, or, or some other, right? So the, the conversation that happened at, within the Calvary Chapel church I went to is like, well, obviously they're welcome. We love everybody, but that's the end of it. Really. They can sit in the, they can sit in the back row. They can listen to you preach. Because in every every single moment, 
the congregation is praying for them to change their evil ways, right? And that's in like heavy quotations. Uh, but God forbid they ever ask to play on the worship team. God forbid they ask to help lead uh, in any way like Sunday school. They, they would never be, be behind the pulpit. None of that's going to happen. So it's, we can love you from a distance until you change. That's completely the experience that I had. So I mean, in specific, there was one situation. And, and let me say this in the context, like this, this gentleman is still my friend. So there's a pastor at a local church not too far from us. And, and we had a meeting once and it was the meeting was with the intention of like, let's, let's work through this because you think being gay is a sin and I don't. So let's just talk through this. And when it got done, neither of us like bent our knee to one another, which I don't expect him to, and he didn't expect me to. But at the end of the day, the the comment that he said to me, and again, it was a good conversation. He let me say my piece. I let him say his piece. And and he said, like one of my favorite comments that he said, well, he said, well, if I change my mind on this, then I have to, what if, what what's next? And I said, well, isn't that the beauty of it? Like we can change our minds on everything. But then at the end when I was, and I felt like he felt like he had to say it, but he said, you know, um, I just want to let you know that your family's welcome at our church. And I said, I, I appreciate your sentiment. I said, but at the end of the day, like my kid can't get married at your church. So we're actually not welcome at your church. So I get what you're saying, but it's not actually true. Now, he and I are still friends to this day. We just had a conversation a couple of weeks ago. We're still, we're still working through this because I think there's value to that. And I think that's a very Christ-like mentality to take. But at the end of the day, like what you said is, is totally true. Like there's some language that's being said that's actually not true. There's some language that's being said that you're accepted or we love you. But I don't know about you, but if, if you're going to accept me, I, I hope that you accept all of me, even if some of me is like horseshit. Like I want you to accept the whole deal and let's work through the hard parts. And, um, but then we're not on equal playing field if I can't volunteer or be married or whatever at your, then we're not truly accepted. So we need to work through that for sure. So my last, my last ditch effort to stay inside the church was to plant my own church. Oh, good and job. So I did that for three years. Um, and it, you know, we, we made the decision not too very long ago to, to shut it down. Part of it was financial. Part of it was just, I'm kind of over church. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> but, hard, right? But, Part so I, I leave. I left this church that had helped build, and and I'm having a conversation with the pastor, and we're leaving on amicable terms. It's totally fine. He's supporting me in my in my new endeavor, and he's doing. He's saying the right things, and in a conversation about how we'd never licensed me to ministry, I said, "Hey, it would be nice to have that to go with me." And so I get I got called to his place to have a discussion about some things he was concerned about, and he asked me two questions. Only two questions he cared about. One, was I a universalist? And two, was I going to marry gay people in my church? And at the time, I honestly said, no, I'm not a universalist. And, and I, I'm st- I still don't, cause, partly because I just don't like labels. I don't think that's horseshit. Right, don't, right. Don't pigeonhole me into that. Because um, that means something to somebody. Yeah. Just, no. But truth be told, I kind of am. And then was I going to marry gay people? At that time, I was conflicted. And uh, I really was. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I've ever told this story or not, but right before we opened this church, my, one of my son's best friends, his mom came out and went through a whole process of leaving her husband and getting remarried and doing all this stuff. And she had come to me and asked if I would marry her and her new wife. And I was just like, it pushed me to a, it pushed me to a reckoning. And I, and I, one of my biggest regrets is I told her no, that I wouldn't do it. I was still on staff at this church. I knew they'd fire me. 
but I do credit her and I've told her numerous times when we opened the church, she was one of the first people to come to my church and several conversations with her were like, thank you for doing that. Like I needed to have, I needed to be confronted with the reality of the, of the things I was saying, but was not willing to actually back up with, with, with action. And that pushed me to a, it pushed me to a conflict, you know, where I had to, I had to resolve. So, but that was the only thing, two things he was concerned about was, was I going to tell people they were going to hell? And was I going to be, you know, affirming and open to, to, to that community? And uh, I'm like, that says everything I need to know, really. Yeah. And I love that mentality that you mentioned, because it's one thing to, it's one thing to say it from a distance, I guess I'll say. It's one thing to say that you're open and affirming from a distance. But then when somebody asks you to marry them, or your kid comes out as gay, or whatever it is, it forces it forces something out of you, right? And you have to decide. You really have to decide. Like it forces, it forces some decisions. And I think that's really healthy. It could expose something in you too. And that was my thing is I felt like, it, I felt like I'd been exposed. Like I've been saying the right things to the right people. And then I got really scared when I knew that it would be my livelihood at stake. Or when I knew that my position, not, not even necessarily my livelihood, I wasn't like getting paid for these people, but it was like, it was my reputation and my position that was going to be at stake. And all of a sudden, I cared more about that than the human being standing in front of me whose heart I broke. And I went, oh, okay, I have to deal with that. Um, and I am to this day very, very grateful that, that, I, that, that she did that and that I was presented with an opportunity to look myself in the mirror and go, you're kind of full of shit. Like that's, you, you took kind of, you kind of took the chicken shit way out there and all right, but we don't we don't move forward without those those without those pivot points, right? I mean, so I can all I can do is be honest about where I was at the time, and okay, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do something different. But that's part of where I am right now. Maybe I maybe I'll segue into into talking about some of the book like this. So that's that's kind of where I am with the church. There was a bit of there was a bit of this hypocrisy that I was dealing with in my own life, where I'm like, on the one hand, I'm really becoming more and more disillusioned with the idea of church as a structured thing. And Sunday after Sunday, I'm standing there propping up this sort, even though it was loosely structured, it was still structured thing. And I kind of, that was part of my, at least part of the the, the matrix of saying, well, I, I just can't keep doing this because my heart's not in it and I'm not sure I fully believe it. So I don't know if that's the direction of the book, something about, you know, said something about finding faith outside of this organizational structure, right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely the context of the book because my whole life was finding God within the context of religion or context of church, whatever you, you know, however you want to describe it. And, um, you know, when I got to that place where suddenly my paycheck wasn't dependent on it, like you truly get to ask all the questions and there's nothing keeping you from reaching the bottom. And so... I, you know, they use the word deconstruction all the time. Like I deconstructed all the way down as far as I was willing to go because there was nobody stopping me from doing that. And kind of when it got to the bottom, I was like, okay, the one thing I'm not willing to give up on is just faith in general. So I think there's something beyond what we can see. And so then I started like going back to my earliest childhood days when I wanted, like when I was in second grade. And if you asked me what I wanted to do for a be for a living. You know, like I'd say I wanted to be a priest or an Indian, one of those two things, <laughs> you know, because some, somehow priest. like, right. Oh. Yeah. And so that's literally <laughs> one of the chapters in the book is the native priest, because I just had this deep desire for like nature and adventure, but then this deep desire for God or spirituality. And I didn't understand as a second grader, you don't understand what you're saying. You just 
feel something, right? And so then, so I, I allowed myself to go all the way back there. And then when I went back there, I was like, hey, wait a second. What if like every story, whether it was serious, funny, ridiculous, in between, like what if, what if the divine was in those stories? And what if I've been sacrificing the true experience with the divine for something somebody told me? And so I thought, you know, for years and years and years, I wanted to write this book, but I never knew why. And so suddenly I was like, okay, I need to write this book so that the readers can hear, hey, this is just an ordinary guy's story. Some of it's so... I mean, there's stories about when I was in grade school, like having a pissing contest on the wall, trying to see how high we could go. Everything from that, from being a a prison chaplain with a guy struggling with his dad beating him with a two by four every day till he was 16. Like there's a a pretty wide variety of of stories in this book. Yeah, for sure. And, and within the, and, and getting kicked out of my own faith community, like all of that is in here. And it's not because I wanted anybody to necessarily connect with my story. I just want people to see like, Hey, through the ridiculous, the good and the horrible, like in all of it, you can see the, the, the footprint or the handprint of some sort of divinity in the midst of that. And it's not pretty and it's not sexy and it's messy all the way through. But at the same time, there's something, there's a grander story going on here. And the hope with writing the book and actually putting it out into the world, which is the scariest thing maybe I've ever done, was to help people to say, hey, okay, that's Matt's story, but what's my own story? And what are those places in my story that maybe I've thought of as simply a traumatizing situation or a funny situation or uh, unfortunate situation. But, but maybe in the midst of there, those situations and those stories, maybe God was in the midst of those. And maybe it doesn't look as perfect as it did when I was listening to that preacher at church, or maybe it doesn't look as perfect as, it, as I want it to evenly, even. But maybe the, the, the crazy mess of it all is what makes it beautiful. You know, and so that that was the heart of the book. I wanted to write these stories forever. I just didn't know why. And then <laughs> when I got kicked out of my own faith community, I was like, "Well, what do I have to lose?" And maybe somebody could, you know, maybe somebody could find some beauty in the midst of them. And and you know, the the other thing too is like this deconstruction space is so damn serious all the time. <laughs> and I just that's not right. who I, like. I'm a guy who loves like, comedy in there. Right? Like, I like to laugh. I like to have a drink. Like, my wife and I, we laugh all the time on our front porch. I'm like, this deconstruction space is so damn serious. I just, on some level, like, I want this book to make people laugh. And that's been the greatest, like, response to the book of people saying, like, there was moments when I got tears in my eyes. And there was moments when I almost pissed my pants because I was laughing so hard. I was like, okay, because that feels like life. So it doesn't... And I wonder if, like, the life of Jesus if that wasn't the same. Like I, when I read some of the stories about Jesus, like I feel like if I was there, I would have been laughing so hard, I would have almost peed myself. <laughs> and, uh, and then there was other moments when I had been like so offended, you know? I mean, Jesus was the one that told Peter to get behind him. Like he called Peter Satan at one point. And I don't know if he was serious or not, but like the, the guy was not afraid to like just say it as it was. And I think the church over history has really been so careful to make it really pretty and make it really feel really good. And I don't, I don't think that has much, I think there's a reason that 2 million people a year are leaving the church. And I think think it's because it feels too safe. Well, I I agree. I mean, I I think there's, there's been a, um, I mean, within my lifetime, and I'm sure it's farther back than this, this idea that Jesus has to be stoic, that there were no, there were no comedy moments between Jesus and his disciples, which I'm sorry, you get, 13 guys together 
You're telling me they're not going to say some offhanded joke? Right. You're telling me around the campfire, nobody told a fart joke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She sorry. didn't once go, hey, pull my finger, Peter. Yeah. Come on. I'm sorry. It's, uh, I know it's, that's irreverent, but... Absolutely not, not going to happen. And then this idea, I, I was also raised with this idea that Jesus never got angry because angry, being angry is a sin. Uh, there are multiple times where I think uh, we see Jesus as angry, put upon, distressed. What's the one where the woman comes up and he calls, basically calls her a dog? Uh, yeah, yeah, and she, and she she has that little clever retort, right? Well, even the dogs get scraps from the master's uh, table, and he's like, "Ooh," but I, yeah, you know, I, like, I think oh, like I should have nice said that. One. That was so good. Right, I I think that's a moment where Jesus is like he, his own his own prejudice from the way he was raised, because at this point, you know, Jesus is a human being, right? He's he's and, and the the way he's raised, and this woman is not equal to the people that he's raised with, right? So he calls her a dog. And that, that's not a, it's not a good moment for Jesus. Well, and there's, we, not really, there's not really a good way to contextualize that and say, well, no, 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 you're taking Jesus out of context. You didn't hear the Greek correct. You, yeah. didn't, quite get it. you didn't quite get the translation. No, actually you did. Well, I got, I got in trouble for preaching a sermon one time when we were going and I, I had I'd just been reading Athanasius and I was really getting into I was reading on the incarnation and there's a, there's a line in there where he says basically about Jesus that that which is not assumed cannot be healed. So all those things that Jesus is not for us, he can't heal us or rise and makes it. So, so in, in essence, Jesus becomes entirely human so that he can redeem humanity. And so if there's an, if there's a corner of your humanity, Jesus has not taken on, then it's, it's left unhealed. So I was making the, I was trying to make the point that I think that Jesus experienced fear. And it was like, Jesus would never be afraid. Oh, it went poorly. The only time (laughs) in the entire time of that church, I was, and the only time I, well, this is a very long story, but I was, I was actually asked to like give my notes to the pastor to preview. And he's like, yeah, not saying this point. And I'm like, why? What, what, what's, what's the harm in saying that well, I've got the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's so stressed out. He's sweating drops of blood through his skin. Um, that sounds like anxiety, which we all know has something to do with fear, which Jesus fully had to have experienced, I think, on some level. In his entire life, he was never afraid. Come on, man. Anyway, I didn't mean to hijack that story. It just, it just, it just conjured up a memory. No, but- no, I love it because, and I think, you know, like what you're saying, to me, like if Jesus can become more human and more real, then he matters more, right? So, so if we can relate to him even more, so if he does, if he isn't as perfect as we've been taught, you know, and I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not even arguing that Jesus isn't perfect. I'm just saying the level that we put him at in in religious spaces is 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 unrelatable. Well, and, I think you get right. You get to this point where. Your version of Jesus or their version of Jesus has him literally walking about two inches above the ground all the time. He, you know, his, he was too holy to actually touch the dirt of the ground that everybody else walked on. And so within my quote unquote deconstruction, which is another, another story that everyone's heard too many times, but I, I had to. But I haven't, John, but I haven't. I'll have to go back and <laughs> but look. But the question, right? You know, I'm sure you guys, I'm sure you guys have heard this question. It's like, so you're, you're, you're within this deconstruction. How far are you willing to go? And I remember someone saying, well, you're not going to deconstruct Jesus, are you? And at first I was like, well, no, who the hell would do that? And then as I get deeper and deeper into my deconstruction, I'm like, oh, he's got to go too. He really does. He's got to go. Or at least he's got to be questioned, right? The, right. 
Well, I just say, so I, I did, I burned it all down. I burned, I burned everything down. And, uh, so the question that came out of it that made me realize that I could still be a Jesus follower was, I'm going to take away everything that everyone had said about this man, about all his miracles, his divinity, his virgin birth, his resurrection, everything I can't prove. Well, would I still follow him? And at the end of the day, the question, the answer was yes. Because of what he stood for, because of what he said, because of the way he treated the other, I can still follow him minus all the miracles. And that's where I was like, okay, I can start from here. And we'll go from here and we'll figure out what I'm going to build from this. And if this is as far as I go, I think I'm pretty good. I think I'm okay. And then, you know, then you tell people that they're like, oh, oh, oh shit, that, 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 that doesn't work. As though there was some sort of requirement to mentally assent to every single thing. You know, that, that was what I remember talking to somebody who was, who was a Unitarian, you know, and of course in my evangelical days, what the hell you, what do you, because you know, they're monotheistic. There's no, Jesus is not divine. And, you know, and I don't know, I don't know enough about Unitarianism, but I know the basic tenets of, and so I was like, you're all going to hell. If you don't acknowledge that Jesus is divinity, that's why the Mormons are all going to hell because they don't believe Jesus was God. That's, you know, that we do. Well, everybody that other than the three of us are probably going to hell. Probably. I mean, I'm not entirely sure about John. I think you're well, pretty, we're still good, like but. working out the story, but definitely Nat and I are going. Well, we're, we'll be there. I mean, yeah, I mean, for sure. But there was so there was so much. John's exactly right, you know. And I um, that there there was this this notion that well, Jesus was off the table. I remember talking to Jeff Turner. I'm not sure if you know who he is. If you don't, you should get to know him. And Jeff and Jeff was on the podcast a year or so ago, and I remember him talking about you know I tried to be an atheist. That's how far I took it. It's like and and for an atheist, he said for about a year. Um, I think it wasn't about a year, John, he said he was, he was still a pastor, but he's like, I was preaching sermons and I was an avowed atheist. He's like, I managed in the whole year to not lie. Like I still believed everything I was, you know, I, I preached things I still believe, but I, I wasn't sure I believed in God anymore. And, uh, and he's like, it didn't last, you know, the whole atheism didn't take, but I, I tried, you know, cause there's a lot of things in my life that would be simpler if I'm being really honest with you. If I'm just like, you know what, just chuck it all, but I can't. Tell me if this was your experience then too. Like my deconstruction of Jesus was not so much Jesus, but the versions of Jesus I had been sold. You know what I mean? Like American nationalist Jesus had to go. Yeah. So on know? the, so I grew up Catholic and I went to a Catholic school up till sixth grade. And like there was, there was this really beautiful Jesus on the wall of our Catholic church or our Catholic school. He was gorgeous. He was blonde. It was flowing hair. And so like, that's the Jesus I grew up. I grew up with a Jesus that was so far from the actual Jesus that, you know, we really know to be true that it took me, it's taken me a long time to find the actual Jesus, you know, and I still feel like I'm on that journey. And, you know, it's talking about like, you know, John, you talked about like, how far down are you willing to go? And, you know, what I would tell people when, when they were struggling with my my faith journey because it was going the wrong direction for them. You know, I'd say, you know, the comment I'd always say is, hey, rock bottom is a great foundation to build off of. And so I would literally there just like, like, I'm willing to go as far down as I have to go in order for this to feel real. And I need to find Jesus at his most true, raw, authentic self in order for him to matter to me. And I need him to not be blonde and blue eyed wearing a robe. I need him to be just as on some level, like I need him to be a little bit uh, messed up like I am. I need him to struggle like I do. 
Um, and then I need to be okay with my humanity. And so, you know, when you're in, you guys know this, like when you're in church circles and when you're on staff at churches, like there's this expectation that you, you like ride above, you ride above grade a little bit. And, and the reality is in those space. So for 18 years, I was in the space of like being on some sort of church staff or Christian staff. And I always felt like I had to hold this line that deep inside, I knew like I wasn't, I wasn't the person that I was portraying, you know, so I'm trying to show you this, this good Christian boy when deep inside, I know that person isn't even true. But when I went through my period of like rethinking my faith, I finally, for the first time came to an understanding that even that form of me, even the form of me that I'm the only one that knows, that form of me seems to be good enough to connect with the divine, good enough to connect with Jesus. And, um, and then I felt like I finally could relate to the people that I read about in the Bible. Like I finally could relate to Peter. I, you know, I think Paul was an asshole, but finally I can relate to him, you know, because <laughs> like the man was like, so quiet, you know? And so there's so much, when I finally allowed myself to just be myself and, and be okay with my humanity and believe that that's still okay, that that's that's a person that Jesus the divine can still connect with then finally i felt like i could open up the bible or open up my mind to god in a new way and realize that hey this might be way messier than i ever thought it would be but it's also like way more meaningful then for me like the the thing that i really had to get rid of is that and i'm sure you guys can relate to this i had to, i had to get rid of certainty so I spent oh, yeah. like the, oh, the yeah. beginning yeah. of my yeah. evangelical space of like learning what I was supposed to believe and how I could defend my faith. And, and the, the ability to finally let go of that burden and to say, actually, I'm not certain about anything. Actually, I have more questions than I have answers. And I love the mystery that the divine has for me. Like that's the most freeing thing that could be. And so... You know, so that's just kind of another part of that journey. Yeah, no, I was I actually segue to what I was going to ask you about because for me, one of the first, you know, we all have, I'm sure we all have our dominoes that fell, right? One big domino for me was, was biblical inerrancy and biblical literalism had like once that, I, and I blame Marcus Borg for this. We can all blame him for a little bit. I think we all blame Marcus Borg on some level. Yeah. Um, and he's uh, dead, so it's fine. And he's dead, so he can take it. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we may or may not see him again someday. I'll, Love that dude. Actually, it was really cool to talk to Dom Crossan, who was friends with Marcus Borg and get his take on Marcus. But um, what's that book? Like, oh, reading the Bible for the first time, again, for the first time. Yeah, but the tagline of that book is like taking the Bible seriously enough to not take it literally. And I was like, I just love the title, you know? And so, and I read that and devoured it. And then all of a sudden, the Bible actually became worth reading again. Because it was like, this isn't the story of a bunch of perfect people who have all their shit together. This is not a perfectly harmonious story even. We can actually now acknowledge that there's discrepancies and, and, and problems with it. And there's, but one thing I think it does faithfully is tell you the mindset of the people who wrote it when they wrote it and what they thought about God unflinchingly. And even when they got it like back asswards wrong, the Bible's I think that's the one way I, I, I tell people now, kind of tongue in cheek. I think I do think the Bible is inerrant in that way, in that it inherently shows you, for better or for worse, what people thought about God. And I don't know if you know much about Rene Girard, but Girard, one of his takeaways from Scripture was it was one of the few sort of holy books that was ever written from the vantage point of of the victim. Um, it doesn't always tell the story from. 
the, from the side of the person who won. They, sometimes it's the Jews getting carried off into captivity and it shows you how they screwed up and got themselves there, which to him lent it credibility as, as, a, as, a, as a piece of text that was just not, more than just mythology. So, but it, I don't know. I'm not sure if that resonates with you at all, but, but the Bible kind of going that way, right? It resonates. So first of all, the first time I heard of Marcus Borg, I was like, I got him to get him on my podcast. And I was like, oh, I know, I know. damn it. <laughs> so that's how little I knew. Yeah, for me, just being able to let go of the inerrancy of the Bible was probably, I would argue, the most freeing thing I've ever done because then it allows, it has allowed me to see the authors of the biblical texts to be normal human beings. Before, when I, when I felt like I had to believe the Bible was perfect from front to back, I viewed all of the authors as beyond human on some level. Like there was some yeah. sort of... You well, they know, were just empty heroes. vessels, right? Just Yeah, right? And so as soon as I finally got to understand them as normal human beings, then I could look at them and see their humanity and see their struggle and also see their, you know, the, the, their success as well and see their... Like they're just doing what I'm trying to do. They're just trying to connect with this God that sometimes feels very close and sometimes feels very distant. And the beautiful thing about the scriptures is that we get like, we get to see it all. Like when we go back to like reading David's writings, like we, like the guy didn't hold back, right? Like he told wow. he told us when he was like feeling like this is a bunch of bullshit. And he also told us when he felt like, oh wait, like God couldn't be any closer than he is right now. And like, why didn't we hear that in church growing? Why didn't we hear all of that angst along with the excitement all at the same time. Cause that's how I feel about God. And when I, when I see Paul and, and see him say like, Oh man, I don't know, man. Like sometimes I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. <laughs> it's like, okay, right. Hashtag like, my whole life forever. <laughs> you know, um, you know, and, and we, Paul, see, I got you, man. <laughs> right. And we'd see, we see Peter who's like, you know, Jesus is weeping because he's telling the disciples what he's going to do. And Peter's like, no way in hell I'm going to let him do that to you. And then he denies him three times. He's like, oh yeah, I understand. Like, I totally get it. Like, I get it. And then at the end, Peter's like jumping out of the boat, swimming to Jesus when like everybody's like, hey, we could actually row there quicker. But like, it's that heart, right? It's like we're, the heart is what's beautiful. And if our heart is, is to try to try to connect with God, like that's, to me, that's what matters doesn't matter that we get the answers right it matters that we're we're just we're just walking out this story the best that we can knowing that we're going to fail and succeed at different and understanding and having so much grace for one another like we talk a lot about Jesus grace for us but how about just like enough grace for one another to say that hey like all of us are totally messed up in so many ways but but we're so desiring to have a connection with the divine so let's be okay with that. Let's be okay with getting it wrong. You know, I think one of my struggles with kind of the progressive Christian movement has been that, you know, we don't want to just assume that now we have it right because we're, you know, so suddenly because we believe that the Bible is not inerrant or because we believe like that's not the right theology. It's just a different theology. We're still like all totally screwed up and trying to figure this out, just like all the authors of the Bible were. And so let's just continue in that vein trust that it, you know, I literally was talking to Keith Giles today, you know, one of our friends and and he was just talking about how he's like, I used to think I was so right. <laughs> it's like me too. And he's like, and I bet things that I think are right today, I'll think in five years from now, I'll realize that I'm wrong again, you know, but isn't that like a great space to be in? Yeah, it's, a, it's, but like what you said about 
progressive Christianity for whatever, whatever, well, actually, whatever stream of Christianity you find yourself in, if you've just simply traded one set of certainties for another, then you've missed the point, right? <laughs> yeah, adventures and missing the point. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, okay, I used to be, I used to be so wrong about this, but now I'm right. Well, uh, I got it now. But now I got it, and everyone else is dumb, right? And so, and that's, I mean, that's just, I don't know. Pete Enns cured me of that. Um, the sin of certainty was. Oh, so good, right? Such a great book. Um, and then from that, sort of getting into some of the more, you know, the more mystical side of, you know, the contemplatives and, you know, the Thomas Burton's and Richard Rohr's and the, you know, those guys who kind of wade into those streams and go, really, I, th- I think there's a quote from one of Keith's books where he talks about, you know, within, and I'm going to paraphrase it horribly, but essentially, you know, if, if, if your doctrine says that you have to be right, then the, then like the, the most, the most blasphemous you can be is incorrect. Like, and then Pete Enns would say you become like, like the guardian of, of correctness. You know what I mean? You become like that, 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 that guy standing on the wall guarding against bad theology. And he's like, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it is exhausting. And if we look to all these people that we hold up as like fathers of faith or whether we look at the desert fathers and mothers or, you know, the old Testament, right? Like all of these people struggled with their humanity and all of them struggled with their, like, we sometimes read them in the context of thinking like, oh, they had it all figured out. But no, like they, they were trying to do what we're trying to do. And that's what makes this scripture so holy. It's not because they're perfect, but because they're honest. On some oh, yeah, level, it's like, right? um, no, I, I, I have finished the book I was writing about, uh, about a year and a half ago. And I submitted it to be, you know, to see what, what would happen, right? And so, uh, they came back with some questions and wanted me to do some editing. I've been sitting on that book for a year and a half because I don't want to reread it because I don't, I'm afraid I'm not going to be where I, I was. So I like, I wrote this book like two years ago. What if I'm not that person anymore? How do I edit a book I maybe don't believe in? Right? Anymore? Oh my so gosh. So I'm like struggling. And, but I think that's a good place to be. That's a, I think it's a better place to be than to be in a place where I'm so certain that nothing in my faith is going to ever change. And then, then we get into this idea of inerrancy, right? Where then we have to do these, these, uh, the spiritual gymnastics to make it all fit. Yeah. Isn't that the truth, John, of like, like we, so we're in the world of podcasting and writing and things like you put that, you put this shit out there. Like it's out there. I mean, you, <laughs> we can all take it back, but if we're honest with it, like, let's leave it out there so people can see like, Hey, there's a progression here. But now you got to own it for all time. Yeah. I mean, I had, we had Brian Zondon. Remember how we, I asked, there's a book Brian Zond wrote, like one of his first books. And I, I asked him about it and he's, he basically said he didn't want to talk about it. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, you still, I'm like, you still, he's like, yeah, I just, just, just talk about that one. I'm like, okay, everyone wrote that. <laughs> um, one of my favorite people, uh, uh, lady named Felicia Merle, and uh, we had her on the podcast um, with uh, Mercy Aiken way back when. And, one of the things she said, and I, I actually quoted her in my book, but she was like, I asked her about this book because I read it and it's really good. What's, what's the name of her book, John? Um, yeah, don't put me on the point. Don't put me really, on the point like that. It's really good. Though, but having had even one, com- we, she was one of the few people we, we interviewed that I talked to. She wanted me to call her and, and we had an hour and a half long conversation before we ever had her on the podcast. And and then I read her book and I'm like, I asked him, it, I, I really liked it, but it doesn't sound as much like you as the conversation we just had, you know, because I could tell she'd already moved beyond. It was very, very, there was a lot of language, you know, that's, that's 
particular to a certain version. Does that make sense almost? Not, not, I wouldn't say Christianese, but certain trigger words, you know? And uh, she said to me, and I've, I've remembered it ever since, she said, there's a reason Jesus wrote in sand. And I'm like, that is profound and clever and smart. And I'm like, yeah. Because she's like, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, I think she was going to go back and at some point edit that book a little bit. But but yeah, I mean, there's 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 things, you know, Hell, I, I wrote I wrote the book that I'm publishing in a couple months and I'm not even a pastor anymore. And there's parts of that book where I talk about the church that I'm pastoring and that I it's not even true anymore. I have to like do a, I have to do like an epilogue, you know, like yeah. so, way. You know? So true. So I, I had uh do you guys know I don't know if you guys know Marla Taviano. She's a new Lake Drive author um with Lake Ooh, Drive and- books that She's good. You should have her on. Okay. But anyway, she, she, uh, her former, so she's a full time writer. And, uh, her previous life, she wrote for like conservative Christian spaces. And so she, she's got books on biblical womanhood, uh, sex within the context of marriage. And, and some of those books, because she was with a, uh, like, actual publisher some of those books are still out there which is hilarious because now she's writing books like jaded and unbelief which are poetry books about her deconstruction phase and so it's fun to watch her just be okay with the fact that hey here's a part of me that's out there you can go ahead and read it if you want but it was a part of my progression towards where i am now i don't i don't dismiss it because it's where i was at the time i don't condone it either but at the same time i understand that that allowed me to get to this space, which is so fascinating. And she's got a great story. But, you know, all that to say, like, we, I don't think we need to be... There's been so many times when I've been tempted to take like the first year of my podcast off, you know, because we could do that. We just delete it, right? Because there's spaces that I'm not super proud of. But the more I think about it, I'm thinking, you know, isn't is it, but let's leave that out there because let's just allow people to see like our actual true, authentic, raw journey to where we're at. And someday, you know, probably two, three years from now, I'll look at this interview and say, oh shit, I hope those guys take that down. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but like, isn't that part of like, don't we learn so much from people's journey as opposed to people's conclusions? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you just, just from Johnson, I'm, we've been, we've been podcasting almost two years now, right? Well, this will be two years this month. I don't think we didn't really have a clear, a clear idea of what we wanted to do or where we were going. We had a, a collection of, of people that we were comfortable reaching out to, to have as guests. And so we reached out to the people that we knew who were in our orbit. And within the first few weeks, we were like, everybody except with the exception of one person we've reached out to has been a middle-aged white guy. Like, is this who we are? And is this, <laughs> Look who we have on the about. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, really. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. And so we were like, anyway. So we, John, John, and I, like, we just intentionally went after people that were outside of our our orbit, people who were doing things that that maybe we weren't familiar with, people who were from spheres we weren't, you know, as, as familiar with, um, people who don't who don't as often get platforms to speak from, and uh, yeah, but and I'll you know so. There's none of that stuff in the first year that I'd go back and go, oof, I don't like that. Except those first two or three episodes we edited ourselves, which were just poorly, poorly produced. I mean, so so like this this year, obviously, I don't know if you guys know who Bruxy Cavi is. He's oh, a yeah. pastor. And he, yeah. I love Bruxy and then it all went to shit. We right. Didn't take his episode, oh. We didn't take his episode down, but... So that it, so that's the interesting thing, right? So I had people saying, okay, because of what happened up there, 
uh, we, we advise that maybe you should take that episode down from your podcast. And I thought about it. I was like, maybe that's true. But then I was like, you know what? Why would I do that? Because that goes against everything I think of. Like, why don't we actually keep the episode, which is an amazing... It was actually one of the most downloaded episodes ever on my podcast. And why don't we keep it and say, hey, that doesn't mean we condone what happened. That doesn't mean we understand what happened. It just means that we're not going to dismiss the entire story. And that we can we cannot condone what he did and also not dismiss his story all at the same time. And we don't need to erase him to make ourselves feel better about himself. Because Bruxy Cavi has been a person who's been very inspirational to me. And I don't need to pretend like that's not true because of what happened. And I still don't have to condone it. You know, like it's all messy. It's all a, it's all hard. And that's okay. Like so, and some people could say, "Hey, Matt was on my podcast, and I heard some shit that went down in his life. I should take him off." But I hope they wouldn't. You know, I hope they would still keep whatever's up there, even in spite of whatever they heard. You know, we wrestled with that one. We really did. Um, and in the end, we decided to take it down just because, you know, it. it and it, I get it. Like I was, uh, I get it. It's the same reason I stopped singing Hill songs songs at my church. You know, number one because they're just bad. But <laughs> I was going to say, just, there's so many reasons. But, there's, but it was like, there's so much going on in that church that it's just, it's unhealthy and wrong and they're covering shit up and they're they're hurting people and I'm just not going to be a part of that. And like both answers are okay, right? Like that's, that's the point, right? Like you're, like I was, I was this close to just like taking it down because I was so pissed. I was so hurt. I was like every, everything everybody was feeling, I was feeling. And then... So I I don't fault anybody for taking it down. Like I think I, for the most part, I would have recommended that people take it down. But for me, because I'm also every day faced with my own humanity, I'm like, okay, like like I'm the one that knows the deepest inside of me, and so I'm not going to be the guy to you know. Then that's not saying that I I I'm I'm. I'm a believer of of what their the conclusions they're coming to in their community. So I'm not giving Bruxy a, a pass. I'm not. I'm actually doing quite the opposite. I'm saying because he's so fucked up, that doesn't dismiss the fact that Jesus has worked in his life. So that's the reason I decided to leave him up. I don't know if I always will or won't. I don't well, know. you know, and the little I know about Bruxy, and we've only had the one conversation, and I like him. I like him a lot. Yeah. Um, oh, so when when he if he ever emerges again as a public figure, I would put my money on the fact he'll be transformed. He's not going to be a Mark Driscoll who leaves with their with all the promises to 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 do all the, to do the work and come back and and come back and be the exact same asshole he was in Seattle. Now he's just doing it in Arizona. Yeah, he's just he's just every bit a mega dick and he's learned nothing. He's, there's no humility. It's like, I remember when, uh, Jimmy Swaggart's still bouncing around in the South yes. and yeah. he's, he's, oh, you know, he's still the same, you know, he seems to be the same dude. Um, Brushy never struck me as that guy, you know, and I had, again, I don't, I could, I don't know for sure. And I don't know. I just don't know if he, I think he's might be one guy you may not hear from in that sphere again. He may have that much humility and that much self-awareness to go. That's probably not going to be my role anymore. But that being said, yeah, we, we, he was probably one of our most downloaded episodes too for a while before we. The man is, he was loved. Man, he was loved yeah. deeply. Loved his books. I loved his, he was, we actually reached him through a friend of a friend, you know, so he was another one of those guys that I, I was able to reach out to almost directly and say, Hey, you want to come on the podcast? And he's like, heck yeah, let's do it. 
Yeah. We've been really, actually, John and I have been really surprised and really blessed, I guess is the right word, but how many people have said, yeah, it, it actually was overwhelming at first because we shotgunned requests to everybody we knew. So and true. almost no one said no. We're like, oh yeah. crap, we got interviews stacked up for weeks because everyone is saying, sure. I and, know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, so I've, I've been doing my podcast for four, I'm going into my fifth year now and I, I feel like what you're saying, it's so true. I remember like reaching out to NT Wright. I'm like, no, no chance in hell. It's like, oh, he said yes. Okay, what am I going to talk to him about? Like, <laughs> he's way smarter than I am. Or you know, so like Brux when Bruxy said yes, I was like, there's no, there's no way Bruxy just said yes to me. I fired off a casual email to Douglas Campbell, who is one of my huge intellectual, and he's like, sure. Yeah. Oh, crap. What are we going to talk about? Yeah, now, now I got to sound like coke. I got to act like I read Deliverance of God in that thousand page <laughs> tome so of his, um, which oh, I tried very hard to read. Um, but yeah, we had Brad Jersak was, was really early on. Paul Young. Um, oh, all yeah, those guys yeah. were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had Brian, Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren said yes to me. Yeah, we love Brian McLaren. Said, and we're like, hell yeah, we're supposed to be getting David Bentley Hart here at some point. So these guys that we have looked up to, and then John John has done the lion's share of the hard work of making inroads with other publishers, and all of a sudden we're having requests come to us. Yeah, and that's, that's been a game changer. Right. Now we're getting books sent to us in the mail unsolicited. Isn't that fun? Like, Isn't hey, that a- yeah, we just we just had a had a really interesting chat with a guy who wrote a biography about one of the first uh, editors of uh, Harper Collins that that did like religion books. And uh, anyway, going through having getting a chance to go through this guy's whole library and archive, and and write this story about this man. And it's like, oh man, this is guy's a freaking Yale and Harvard. PhD level historian. Yeah. The reason why this is encouraging is because like if we rewind 10 years and we think about the Mark Driscoll's and the we think about the people who were the names, right, of the evangelical, like they're untouchable. You wouldn't get them on any... If, if podcasting was a thing back then, you oh, wouldn't yeah. get them on our podcast, right? And so I think the thing I'm encouraged by now is that people are open to the conversations. The people that are the names that you're starting to hear are people that actually want to talk about their struggles or their questions or their doubts. You know, the fact that you know, Brian McLaren was such an integral part of my, my faith journey. And then when I yeah, actually... And I'm, I met him in person um, when he was speaking at a church I was a worship leader at. But then when I reached out to him and he was so kind and so generous and now he's actually, you know, for him to become a friend of mine is just like, it's, it's it to me, it gives me so much hope to think that, hey, wait a second, maybe now we're doing this Jesus looking thing where... So there's this... Pente- when I was a prison chaplain, there's this Pentecostal preacher. He was the most fiery... MFR I've ever met in my life, this young dude, and uh, and he did this message, and I'll never. So we would have like the whole the whole gym would be filled with all sorts, you know, as a variety. We had our Native Americans, we had our Hispanics, we had our our, our um, African Americans, we had our white dudes, we had our Catholics, we had our Lutherans. This guy's getting fired up, and he's like, he's got he's got the hanky, the whole like he's like rubbing his his forehead, he's beating on the pulpit, and then he stops and it's dead silent, and he said these words that I'll never forget. He said. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and there's dead silence. And then he screamed it and everybody got all fired up. But I never forgot that idea because, you know, I feel like that's maybe a movement that we're going into of this idea that, hey, maybe we all are actually equal. Maybe these Christian superstars are actually no longer. And maybe whether you have a little podcast on the side or a little book on the side that doesn't make you better or worse, or whether you're, you know, a teacher or a pastor 
or uh, you know whatever. You own your own business. You teach kids how to. Like I don't care what you do, but if you do it with the heart of Jesus, like the ground is level, and you know further above or further below anybody else. And I'm hopeful that as we move into this next kind of revelation of church or Christianity or spirituality, that we move forward with that heart, that like people like Brian McLaren are no better than the John and Nat Turneys of the world, or people like Brian Zahn are, you know, no more or less important than the Matt Kinzeras of the world, because all of our stories matter and all of our experiences matter. And we can actually be in a room and it's a beautiful experience. And we don't have to feel like one of us is better or worse or smarter or dumber than the other. Yeah. No, I totally agree, man. That's a, and that's one thing that I have appreciated about all those people that I mentioned. I can go through the list of people who were yeah. you know, way smarter than me, you know, way more talented. And, and they were all, every, without exception, like super, super generous and super, yeah. you know, they, they, encouraging. And there were some, some folks I was, a little intimidated to talk to, you know, because you know they. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know this I'm, I'm aware of them, and talking to Brian Zahn was a little bit of a, you know, little fanboy moment. And yeah, absolutely, uh, McLaren was like for me it was like if, if he was a very integral in my deconstruction. Jenith, a generous orthodoxy kind of was one of those uh, first things. Was life like, changer, right? It's like what the hell is going on here? You know, the only guy we're missing right now is Rob Bell. If I get Rob Bell on, then we'll be complete. Yeah, that guy won't get back to me to save my life. But I, I gotta, I gotta find a way to get. To him. I got an in. We haven't pressed it very hard, but we do have an in. So we had a guy. We have John and I are friends with a guy who we've had on the podcast twice, who is good friends with Rob. Yeah. What and I'm he, wondering is if we go to like Southern California, find him surfing and like hold his head underwater. Yeah. Maybe. Like, then maybe he'll be on yeah, the podcast. Maybe so. But if Paul, if you're listening to this, Paul, we're we all going to start pressing on you for that. Because uh, um, I made a joke once. I was telling I was telling Paul it was really funny because this is how this is how close Paul and this is Paul Bergman. If you want to know, he's former UCLA football player, played pro football, just a cool guy. You know, he lives in Ohio, California. He's, he's one of the most authentic Christians I know. Just a good dude. But I was at a Rob Bell event and I was, and I can't remember which one it was now, but you know, he does a lot of multimedia stuff in his, in his events. And so there's this big, it wasn't everything is spiritual. It was one before that, but so the whole stage has these screens and the whole time he's talking, these pictures come up and he's, and at one point, this picture of Paul flashes on the screen and he's shirtless with a glass of whiskey and a cigar in his mouth. And I remember looking at my wife and, and, and what I told Paul that I told her was like, oh my God, um, Rob, Rob Bell knows Paul Bergman. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't like, as I told Paul, I'm like, it wasn't like, oh my God, my friend Paul knows this celebrity. It was like, oh my God, he knows Paul? And he thought that was the funniest damn thing he ever heard. He's like, oh man, next time I see Rob, I'm going to tell him that. I mean, he's never going to come on your podcast now, but I'm going to tell the tale of that. I mean, the thing about Rob that's so great is like he was the first person to say, actually, you can just walk away from this shit and yeah. make a go of it. You and know, he did he it. I mean, that gave us permission. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, because when I was uh, when I was a youth pastor, it was right around the time Rob was, Rob was really cranking out those NUMA videos, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so we, I just gave a bunch of them to Goodwill last week. Yeah, actually. and they're good. They're still good, but they're they're a middle of, they're a middle of the road enough that we could play them for our youth group and not get in trouble. You know what I mean? And uh, and then I was listening to his sermons on on because he podcasted his or he you know put his sermons out every week, and I was paying a lot of attention to him. And then he wrote "Love Wins" and it was all hell broke loose. I mean, uh, it was I like, just is a game changer. It was like, but yeah. 
Adios, farewell, Rob Bell. Um, yeah, no see you longer later. the darling. Of, and then he, you know, somehow got connected with Oprah, and he's now he's Satan. So, right, right, right. Because <laughs> too bad for him. Yeah, too bad for him. Yeah, it looks like it really, really hurt him. Yeah, yeah, he seems to be struggling. I mean, losing all that evangelical support really, really tanked his career. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right, we'll we'll reach out and we'll see if we can get a we'll get an in with him and. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, do we'll, it. We'll get you hooked up. But you've had NT right on. You don't need Rob Bell. You've had NT. So. I do. I do. I actually do. I we were do. supposed to get Tom on, not too. I mean, at one point, and then he kind of. Yeah, he he just happened to be like putting out a book when I reached out yeah, to him. Yeah, it was John. John had gotten in touch with a publisher, and they were like, "Hey, who of these people would you be interested in talking to?" And it was Tom Wright, and it was two or three others, and we're like, "Yes, yes, yes, hell yes to all of those." And then, for whatever reason, with the the, the NT right one never never worked out. Yeah, but, I might have uh, got him in the in the middle of the pandemic too, which is probably helpful. Like he probably didn't have anything going on, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. he probably did. Yeah, yeah I don't remember. Good. He was great though. I, we did a couple of episodes with him. Good guy. He was, he's, he was hilarious. But he's a good dude. If he have you had Baxter Kruger on? No, no. So good. If you can if you can track him down, by far our most downloaded episode. Really? Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, like, not even close. He's like two or three times everybody else, and uh, has committed multiple times to coming back. And so far, we have not made that happen. <laughs> like, I, I emailed him at least yeah, once a week, going, "Hey, we still on for?" Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 uh. But yeah, um, he's a busy dude. I don't think he emails much. But so cool. What's uh, remind me again? The name of your podcast is the name of the podcast is Chasing Goodness. Yeah, chasing goodness. Okay, so if you guys are in the in the in the market for a, a another podcast, not one to switch up from, but to add to, you're you're invited to, you know, add yes, yeah, you can not um, like do not go from this. I don't one want to see that my one. subscriptions go down. You know, you um, no, but um, Please, no. Def, definitely yeah, check it's not it out. That good. I'm assuming that your book is available wherever books are sold. It is. It is. It's called uh, "Bring It Home: The Adventure of Finding Yourself After Being Lost in Religion." Just a bunch of stories. I think you'll enjoy it. Well, like we always say, John, what's our tagline? Buy the book. Come buy on, the come book. buy the book. Come on, man. Buy all, the book. We're all like, wait, what are you going to do with that 20 bucks? This is, I mean, buy, the book. buy a cup of coffee, maybe a, maybe a bagel, or buy a book and enrich somebody's life and your own. I'm just saying. Yeah, you think. yeah exactly. Yeah, so do that. We'll link to all that stuff in the show notes, um, podcast, uh, all your social media stuff if you have it. We'll make sure everyone knows about it, and then we'll do our very best to push it out there, man. Love it. Hey, let's do it. Let's flip it around. Let's have you guys on the Chasing Goodness podcast. All right. Yeah, for let's sure. Do it. Yeah. Uh, t- just let me know. John's got, John, John, you can email me through John or whatever. I do have a book coming out pretty soon. So I'm going to be looking for podcasts to go on to promote that. So, all right. Well, I'm one um, of them. All right. All right. Absolutely, man. That would be fantastic. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.